Welcome to Bits, Bytes and Bourbon, the podcast that covers the worlds of technology, gaming, and geekdom with a fine tasty beverage. Hosted by Julian Spillane from Kermi Games and Avinash Singh from Easy Tech Care, this relaxed, off-the-cuff podcast is rich with non-sequiturism debates on whether they should have taken the red pill or the blue pill. And we're back. We're back in more than one way because it's been six weeks since our last podcast. We're still alive. We're still alive. We're still kicking. Um, you're probably wondering how is it that both uh, Julian and I are sitting in a room recording a podcast right now together because we are not doing this remote. We are actually in the same room. And uh, quite appropriately, as two podcast hosts, we created a pod. Uh, I think that is the parlance in the, in the day of uh, quarantining and uh, social distancing, where, uh, you know, outside of our immediate families that we, that we live with, uh, we are the only people that we have any contact with. So yeah, it's the, the pod that pods. It's the pod that pods. So uh, the only human being I interact with, aside from my wife and my kids, is Julian, and uh, the only person outside of uh, his girlfriend that he interacts with is me. Yes. So yeah, it's been it's been a, a good way of getting that little taste of humanity. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, we're coming to you uh, live from the, uh, the the back lounge over at uh, Easy Tech Care because Easy Tech Care uh, is uh, is is an essential business. Uh, as we we provide IT support and uh, telecommunications services, VoIP services, all that kind of good stuff. But we're also the IT department to all of our customers, uh, you know, all over the world. And uh, they are now all working from home and they need IT support in many more places than they ever did before. So uh, pretty wisely, uh, the Ontario government included us uh, in two separate listings of the essential services list. So we're still running our, our business. Um, uh, however, it's weird because I'm the only one who ever comes in the office. The rest of the team's all working remotely from home uh, to maintain, to maximize social distancing and to make sure that uh, they're not taking transit unnecessarily. Um, and obviously the question comes up, I actually live very close to the office, so I just walk here and Julian lives very close to the office, so he just walks here as well. So, you know, that's kind of, the interesting thing is we were talking about on the last episode, six weeks ago, how everything was getting canceled conferences were getting canceled and you know WWC is getting WWDC you know hadn't been canceled yet and how are they gonna actually think about running because there's no real way they can do it and well literally within the week the world just canceled itself like yeah. everything shut down all our considerations about oh will Collider be canceled this year it's yeah no everything got canceled everything In was fact, canceled this year. it's to the point now where we don't know when the world's actually gonna resume again so the UK government is now advising that uh, they will not be reopening uh, until the end of the year. Yeah. As, and, as a worst case. Yeah, and it's interesting too, right? Because with the, with the UK, early days, and uh, this all predates, you know, um, uh, Boris Johnson getting COVID-19 himself, but they were going with the insane British stiff, uh, stiff uh, upper lip you know, strategy <laughs> yeah. where it's like, yeah, we're not going to social distance. We're not going to shut anything down. Uh, you know, we'll just tough it out. Right. And that went horribly wrong. Well, I mean, when your prime minister is espousing the let's just build up herd immunity suddenly gets COVID-19 as a result of that hubris, 
Uh, it's a quick way to change national policy. Yeah, particularly when he went into the ICU as a result of it, right? Yeah. So thankfully he's okay and all that kind of stuff. But there was, leading up to his infection, or at least around about the time he got infected, there was a marked change in British attitude, at least at the governmental level. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure the, the, the general British citizenry, particularly in the city of London, are like, this is crazy. Um, but, uh, but the government seemed to want to kind of go in that weird tack. And that, that is, you know, I mean, the, the only holdover of that is Sweden, where yeah, and Sweden, the Swedes decide, oh, you know what, we're just going to be smart about this. And, you know, the interesting thing about Sweden is everyone talks about the fact that they did nothing. It's not that they didn't do anything. What it is, is Sweden has a long and storied history of treating its citizenry like grown-ups. Mm -hmm. And they turn around and behave like grown-ups. Well, and, and that's what they relied on, and it, yeah, it worked. Well, it's, it's, my problem is, you're seeing all the headlines, and it's, it's all over social media. Is Sweden's uh, take on social distancing working? Question mark? Because if it was working, it wouldn't be a question, it would be a statement. That's right. Sweden's novel approach to COVID-19 is working would be a headline. That's right. Is Sweden's working? No, the answer is no. We actually, uh, Avinash and I crunched the numbers mm -hmm. uh, this week. And we did a per capita basis accounting for habitable land mass in Canada. And Sweden is seeing a five times per capita death rate than we are here in Canada. That's right. Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's not working. Mm -hmm. Like, it might be working... Um, in some capacity, but, and it might not be as bad as the United States, Italy, or Spain, but they also, Sweden is a country with historically very little immigration, mm -hmm. very low uh, tourism outside of neighboring regions. Right. So like... And also it wasn't tourist <coughs> season, right? No one's going yeah. to Sweden in February. Exactly. Right, in January and February. So... And on the other side of things, we're seeing headlines of... Uh, you know, Iceland's approach to COVID-19 is a model to be looked at. Mm. But Iceland has a population of 200,000. That's right. They have medical supplies and the ability to... You could test everyone yeah. in the country tomorrow. Absolutely. Every and, single and, human. And, and uh, contact tracing is a piece of cake in Iceland. Yes. Right? I mean, we often joke, right, you know, the fact that uh, when, when Iceland made it to the World Cup, or made that run, right, that famous run, that someone had done the back of the napkin math that every eligible man who could play football was on the team in <laughs> Iceland. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, Iceland is a manageable sort of thing. The really interesting stuff is stuff like happening in India where you know, you're trying to lock down a fifth of mankind. Uh, that's a fascinating experiment. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, the... the, the you know, there's no real way to kind of put it any other way. The gong show that is the United States. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, um... We have Las Vegas mayors willing to offer their populace up as control groups for death. Just to open casinos. Uh, and then you've got things like, you know, Washington State early, being hit really early, um, but really was a model for acting fast and acting, you know, um... Uh, convincingly towards it and being guided by science. I thought I would see a lot of things in my life, but I never thought I would see the day that the President of the United States actively suggesting that the injection of bleach into the veins of the human populace could be an adequate response to any crisis. 
Right. Or, or, and I'm not even sure if it's, it's either injecting it or inhaling vaporized bleach. That was kind of a, a, an amazing thing as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole thing is, is that you're seeing the world over, um, those who sort of listen to scientists and pay attention to what they're saying, who've embraced science and focused on them being a guiding light, right? That the science gives you your facts and then you as a politician do the novel thing, pardon the pun, of informing policy by facts mm -hmm. tends to be a good idea. My big concern is now that we're starting to see uh, deaths and infections level off in countries like Italy and Spain, mm -hmm. we're starting to see it now in Canada, mm -hmm. that people are going to start, A, getting foolhardily... Um, uh, confident, mm -hmm. but also people pushing to reopen borders too soon. I, I really think that you're only as strong as your weakest link, yep. and the United States being as bad as it is, is a huge risk factor to the entire world. Yeah, I agree. And and the interesting thing is, the biggest reason why it now poses a risk actually doesn't have much to do with their infection rates. It has to do, in my opinion, with how they chose to assist their populace, right? And so the hue and cry for reopening the American economy stems from the fact that their initial surge of aid was focused on businesses and not on people. Mm -hmm. And now the masses down in the States are getting desperate because they don't have any money in their pockets, they can't pay their bills, and they're gonna get this $1,200 check sometime in the mystical future now the flip side is up here in Canada, the first surge of funding was all getting that $2,000 in the pockets of every man, every, every man and woman across the country who needs it, who qualifies for it. Try to get that disseminated to the masses as, as, as quickly as possible and then worry about the businesses later. And the interesting thing is what I'm seeing as a business, uh, as, as a business person here in Canada, the noise that the business community here is making, and it's legitimate, the complaints that the business community is making is the exact same complaints that the masses are making down in the states. Yeah, and I'd rather I'd rather far fewer businesses make those complaints than the general populace having to make. That's those exactly complaints, it, right? and so that's where that pressure of wanting to open the economy early is coming from. Is the fact that there are you know hundreds of millions of people in the states who are broke now and are terrified and need to work. Yeah, it's much in Canada. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of small businesses that are very concerned but i think canada's already handed out like literally to millions and millions of people that two grand a month well and i will say that uh most of the people making the big noise for reopening the economies are the same uh similar demographic as the doomsday preppers who claim that they you know need all their uh hoarding and guns and supplies to deal with the end of the world and it's telling that they couldn't even survive four weeks of a lockdown yeah, down in the states <laughs> right sure. in the u.s up here uh the people who are and, and you're right so those are the the masses down in the states up here in canada of course the 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 industry that is making the most noise uh for help is the hospitality industry yeah well i mean and, and that's the unavoidable thing is i i think businesses restaurants specifically should be really paid attention to mm -hmm. in the coming few weeks to months because mm -hmm. we're already hearing about decades long decades old mainstays coming to a close whether voluntarily or financially 
Um, you know, we have Vesuvio's here in Toronto closing after what? 67, 67 years. years. I mean, it's voluntary. Yeah. But it's also like, it's uh, voluntary is in air quotes in that they would have continued operation That's had right. this not happened. Yeah, six weeks ago, literally six weeks ago from the last podcast, it was a viable business. Yeah. Viable enough, like, oh, let's just keep doing this. We've got the money to retire or whatever, but let's just keep doing this. To now, we're not risking our futures over this anymore. We're shutting it down. Prohibition Gaster House is announced oh after 13 God. years they're closing, and the owner has lost his house. Yeah. Um, and it's just... And it's heartbreaking. So when I first moved to Leslieville, um, which became the genesis of moving Easy Tech Care into Leslieville and all that kind of good stuff... Uh, that was like they had just sort of opened up. I've I've been in Leslieville now fourteen years, right? So, uh, no, 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 sorry, my mistake. I've been in Leslieville seventeen years, so never mind that. No, 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 yeah, 16, 2004, yeah, yeah, sixteen years. Uh, and so Prohibition opened a few years later and was like this great new place. And so I've been there from the day that they mm-hmm. that they opened their opened their doors. It's you know. Julia and I popped into Prohibition probably sometime in February for a drink. Yeah, and it was slammed because it was always slammed, right? And it was open. This is a this is a bar that was open. It was so financially successful that it was open till two a.m. every day of the week. Yep, and the kitchen um, was open late, that which was is which is rare for this neighborhood. Yeah, and the I mean the problem is like a lot of the infrastructure that's being put in place now to help businesses like Siba uh, and the. Um, 75% uh, payroll, wage subsidy. wage subsidy. They're great, but and they are, they are very effective, wonderful things, but restaurants are a cash flow type business. Mm-hmm. You generally, if you take away a hospitality business's revenue for a month, mm-hmm. chances are they will go out of business because, they're, because their margins are so low, yep. they are barely eking out profit yep. at any, most of them aren't profitable, most of them are just barely eking out their existence mm-hmm. and operating at a loss. Mm-hmm. So you lose a single month of cash flow and, and it doesn't matter, you have all the wage subsidies in the world, That's right. you're gonna, if you can't pay rent, you can't pay rent. Yeah, and, 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 and so even the best run restaurants, a month of revenue is all of your profit you're going to make in a single year and in this city especially like you know for for those of you living in smaller cities um toronto has in an exceptional rent problem um on both residential and commercial sides where you have businesses that might need to cough up twenty thousand dollars in rent for their commercial street side property mm-hmm. and their monthly revenues might be twenty seven thousand. yeah subtract cost of goods uh, salaries yep. and they're probably breaking even mm-hmm. at in the best of times. That's right. You take away all of that revenue. Well, now you're not only out a month's salaries mm-hmm. and cost of goods, but how are you going to make up that almost twenty thousand dollars in rent? And you know, before we move on from this topic, one thing that's really important is that in sort of the best scenario, people who have financially planned properly. You're talking about socking away two to three months of of what you need to survive. Well, we're in month two. Yep. Right? Uh, In a week and a half, less than a week, at least less than a week and a half, uh, I guess it's a week's time, maybe a little more, um, uh, those businesses are going to have to cough up their second month of rent with no revenue. Well, look at at the SIBA loan, right? $40,000. Uh, of which twenty five percent will be abated, basically. Mm-hmm. So you're you're effectively getting a forty grand loan for thirty k, which is yep. good. Interest free. Interest free. But if your 
rent is, is $20,000, that's that loan will float you for two months. Yeah. And now what? Yeah, that's exactly it. So, you know, you, you, we heard numbers like uh, a third of restaurants wouldn't be able to survive month one and over half won't be able to survive month two. There's the numbers. That's, yeah. the, that's where it bears out. I, I was looking at some statistics that were saying something close to 75% of all restaurants will close globally mm-hmm. as a result of COVID-19. Yeah. So, like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm glad that our businesses are kind of barely affected in mm-hmm. that, yeah, it's not um, operations as usual, but we're still generating revenue. We're still paying people. We're still paying payroll. Like, mm-hmm. not much has changed other than operations. I really feel for businesses um, that just have no recourse mm-hmm. in these trying times, which is why it's very important to keep supporting local. Hundred uh, percent. Constant, like, like order from your local restaurants. Where Speaking of, uh, that bears mentioning uh, what we're enjoying this evening. So we're enjoying two different things. First of all, we're enjoying a cocktail, and the cocktail is entirely comprised of local tastiness. We've got uh, Dylan's Vodka from here in Ontario. Um, we're, ma- we're, drinking, we're drinking kombucha mules. So Dylan's Fantastic Vodka, we're having that, along with one of our neighbors in our actual building, uh, more kombucha. It's so we're mixing Dylan's vodka with a little bit, a splash of agave, and more kombucha's fantastic uh, lemongrass ginger kombucha to make our own little um, kombucha mule. It's like it's like a it's like a Thai mule. Yeah, I guess so. Like yeah, lemongrass and ginger. It's really it's it, it's really effervescent. It's bright. Uh, you know, I'm I I am historically not the world's biggest kombucha fan, but. Uh, Moore makes amazingly delicious kombucha, and it, it works well in the cocktail. It works well, and uh, we love it so much that here at, here at Easy Tech, we actually have it on tap. So we, we, we keep it on tap around here. And the other thing that we want to make a big shout-out to, because we're also drinking it as well, is uh, Stock and Rose uh, Low and Slow Dry Cider. Um, so we're drinking that tonight as well, and it's they're a great um, uh, bunch of guys outside of uh, coming out of uh, Prince Edward County. And... Uh, They've got a deal right now uh, where you can order your, your cider from them. They'll deliver it to you. Uh, and uh, they also, every week, pick a restaurant, a local restaurant actually down here in the city, uh, that they kick all the uh, the proceeds to. They are donating 100% of the profit, of, like obviously not revenue, but 100% of the profit mm-hmm. to uh, local restaurants. And so... So this week, it's uh, they're, they're kicking, uh, kicking um, uh, all the profit over to uh, a very fantastic local watering hole of ours. Uh, called the uh, Vatican, Vatican Gift, Gift Shop, Shop. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, a great little speakeasy. Um, and literally, it's a Vatican gift shop in the front end, and you pop into the back, and it's a fantastic bar with uh, the appropriately painted ceilings and stuff. And uh, so, you know, th- that's what we're enjoying tonight. We're trying to keep it local, trying to support our local businesses. And while uh, Stock and Row isn't exactly local, they're over, they are in Ontario, and uh, they're in Prince Edward County. Um, we're getting the double benefit of the fact that they're actually supporting our neighbors as well in the mm-hmm. process. So shout out to all of those guys, um, and uh, and we're 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 really enjoying uh, the beverages. It's, it's lubricating the conversation quite well. So. Indeed. So let's let's move out a little out of dark times. Let's talk about some of the exciting stuff that's happened uh, in the time we have left here. Mm-hmm. Um, video games. It, it, so you know, last we spoke, Doom Eternal had yet to come out. Um, Final Fantasy VII was but a 
an angel dancing on the pinhead of an idea mm-hmm. and yet to enrapture and envelop my soul. Um, <laughs> and, and everything else was delayed by at least three to four months. Absolutely. Uh, we're still... And it was severely delayed by a, a myriad of things, right? Obviously, you know, you, people getting around. But, you know, I think we, meant, we mentioned it in an earlier podcast that we in the IT world were the Canadian coal mine where we saw you know, massive disruptions in our supply chains because something was going on in China and that something ended up being COVID-19. Yeah. And so now we're seeing our supply chains ramp back up again, but because North America is now in lockdown, those supplies can't get over to us. Well, in the video game world where it overlays to you, one of the first things you saw was um, severe shortages and sellouts of the pre-orders of Animal Crossing on, on Nintendo Switch. Well, and specifically the Animal Crossing Special Edition Switch itself. That's right. Uh, which, you know, Nintendo does all their production out of China. Uh, and as a result, during the height of COVID-19, a lot of those uh, pre-orders were unable to be sh- fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same thing, we're, they're actually experiencing Switch shortages Unlike they like unlike anything other than when the Switch first launched. Mm-hmm. Right now, anyone who wants a Switch, you can't just order one online at the moment. Back orders are probably months long at this point, mm-hmm. and they're doing their best. They're trying to ramp up production, but it's you know everyone's hands are kind of tied. And everyone's really, I mean, particularly Japanese companies in droves now. They are moving their production back to Japan. Yeah, I mean, part of that is um, an excuse to be nationalistic, mm-hmm. and another part of it is. Uh, a lack of wanting to be reliant on a supply chain they can't control. Yeah, I think what people are mistakenly thinking is that this is going to renationalize supply chains and not be globalized anymore. I think it's going to accelerate the globalization of supply chains. Yeah. Make sure you're not dependent on any given geography. Because at the end of the day, if you're an international company based in the United States, manufacturers shipping it all over the world, if you put all your eggs in the U.S. basket and look at what it looks like right now, if something like this is that's happening in the U.S. happens again, now you can't service your international customers. I, I honestly think there's... So you had your yeah, bet by just having stuff everywhere. There, there's, there's, you know, no one wants to be the person that innovates um, because innovation is costly. Mm. But were you to take the, the Foxconn approach of... Mm being able to mobilize a... So not the Foxconn approach of working your employees to death. No. That's a terrible that's Foxconn bad. approach. But the Foxconn approach of mobilizing a... Uh, very quickly mobilizing a manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm. If that became a skill set that was widely known, you could have someone like LG in a global crisis um, mobilize a factory in Jakarta, mm-hmm. right? Or mobilize, like, you know... Um, a factory in South America or Latin America to deal with local distribution and manufacturing mm-hmm. just as quickly, just as efficiently. Because, you know, we talk about, oh, yes, it is very cheap to outsource to, uh, quote unquote, previously developing nations. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case anymore. No. If you could open up a factory tomorrow or repurpose a production facility in a flyover state mm-hmm. uh, like Nebraska, Mm-hmm. A lot of out, out of job and out of work, you know, people who could be put to quickly building fulfillment for North America. That's right. Right. And, and I think that, yeah, I, I, I think that it's not that you're right. Supply chains won't be nationalized. Supply chains will be further globalized and not, right. you know, globalization so far has meant, well, let's just punt the ball over to China. To China right. That's not what it's going to mean anymore. Punt, it's going to punt, be punt the ball it, it, it's punt, it was punt the manufacturing ball to China and punt, punt the customer service ball to India. That's right. And that's, that's it. But no, it's like we – A, 
universal basic income and a lot of these programs need to happen because there will be more people than there are jobs, period. That's right. But even and that experiment is happening globally right now. Yeah. Everyone's doing universal. And even basically. unskilled, you know, places where there are unskilled labor, you can turn that around into anything. That's why like Blackberry successfully ran their manufacturing operations out of Waterloo, Ontario mm-hmm. for twenty years, um, without operating at a loss because right. you had a lot of people who worked automotive mm-hmm. who they can screw shit together. That's right. Right? That's they exactly can solder right. stuff. That's right. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, it's, not, it's not outside of anyone's skill set. And it's also not terribly that much more expensive than offshoring if you factor in shipping. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Right? So, so you know, that whole thing, uh, you know, basically, you know, spilled over into the gaming world um, as far as supply chain is concerned. But fast forward now, literally all this time later, because, again, it's been a big gap between podcasts. And Animal Crossing did ship, mm-hmm. uh, and is taking the world by storm. Oh yeah, the virtual stalk market, <laughs> S-T-A-L-K, is actually performing much better than the real world stock market at this That's point. True. Uh, Elijah Wood just uh, bought someone's turnips at a reasonable price, That's apparently. Right. So, uh, now Animal Crossing has become the the like the game that has taken the world by storm. Although it's no surprise that Frodo likes turnips. Of course, I mean, you know, they're, they're kind of like taters. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah, what about second breakfast? Really, <laughs> I, I, Animal Crossing is, is this fun thing because it's 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 not for me, and that's I've always acknowledged this. You know, ever since the the, the first Animal Crossing was brought to North America for the GameCube, it's very goalless, but it's it's comforting with wonderful characters and wonderful environment, and like they've added in so many more social features now that it's kind of the game the world needed in COVID nineteen. That's right. Where you can, it's a cozy, comfortable escape. Isn't and, it? And, and you can visit your friends tailor-made, custom-made. Right, it's like, in a non-infantilizing way, the world is playing dress-up. Yeah. Right? Like, you're building and curating your entire environments. You're coming up with cool design patterns for clothes to sell. Mm-hmm. It's... It's this weird virtual it's like the Sims. It, it's the Sims meets like Second Life, but yep. not in a creepy way, right? Uh, like far less pervy yeah, than that's true. than than Second Life. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think it's kind of like the like the nonviolent MMO the world needed right now. Mm-hmm. Um. But Doom Eternal came out, and right. speaking of speaking of violence, of violence <laughs> right. that was the game that I needed in this right. in, in these dark times, because. Um, the satisfaction of ripping and tearing all those demons to shreds was exactly the catharsis I needed for that bit of time. Sure. Um, I will call it, right now there are many people who will disagree with me, and that is the beauty of opinions. Um, I think it is the greatest first-person shooter ever made. Um, full stop. Full stop, period, of all time. Top to bottom, it takes everything that is spiritually and conceptually good about Doom... Mm-hmm. You know, Doom 1 and 2, the OG Dooms, and makes it feel like a modern game should feel. It's It takes all the bright lessons about making an arcade action-focused game and brings it into modernity. There's very little that I will criticize about it. Maybe a couple of encounters that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and, you know, Pobody's nerfect. But it's it's... To me, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, first-person shooter ever made. And I'm going to stand by that, and I'm going to leave it at that. I'll let you do the mic drop on Doom there. Yeah. I'm going to quickly pick up the mic and point it back at you. 
to have a follow-up conversation to one of our previous pods, which was a while ago. This wasn't, uh, or was it? Yeah, this was the one from six weeks ago, uh, where Ori and you talked a ton about the prospect and the early, you know, the early things that you were seeing about Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, so Final Fantasy VII Remake came out. Um, and that's come out in the last couple of weeks. So. It, came out, it came out a week ago. Maybe two weeks now. I don't even remember what day it is. <laughs> uh, I beat it. And? And? It is exactly what Julian in 1997 playing Final Fantasy VII for the very first time on a PlayStation... It is what I remember feeling and imagining playing at the time. Okay. And, and like, they were faced with an impossible situation, these developers. How do you remake something that has so much nostalgia tied to it that any change you make um, is bound to piss off somebody? Right. It, it is literally a, a Kobayashi Maru. Right. And they took a Kobayashi Maru um, solution to it. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's frustrating because I can't actually talk about how smartly written and presented the game is without spoiling um, a very integral sure. aspect of the well, game. We're not going to spoil it for you. So. That is something we'll talk about a few weeks from now when everyone has played it. Mm-hmm. I will just say that not only is it one of the most uh, viscerally satisfying Japanese RPGs I've played in recent years I think it might be one of the best well thought out Japanese RPGs of all time okay uh, the combat system is infinitely replayable incredibly fun it's polished where it's need where it needs to be and rough where it doesn't matter um, it's obviously not the entire Final Fantasy 7 game it is part one and, and it's always been an implicit part one and everyone's kind of always known that sure but they take a very interesting narrative turn towards the end Again, which I won't spoil, that makes for an uncertain, cool um, frontier future for the franchise. Mm-hmm. And I could not have been more impressed by this game. Um, there, my only complaints are niggling little things that are, you know, difficulty balances, and I think hard mode is absolute bullshit. Um, right. But. The game itself is a masterpiece, an absolute pure and utter masterpiece that satisfied my inner child in ways that, like, I don't think I can verbalize. So now we just need to stick <laughs> this team on Fantasy Star and they'll be fucking fantastic. Yeah, well, Fantasy Star Online too. actually. I mean, this is something we, that has happened since we last spoke. Right. So Fantasy Star Online was the MMO, sort of. Um, I, 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 they're called Guild Wars-style MMOs or instanced MMOs where... Um, there's a, a hub world that's massively multiplayer, but up to only four players can go into a dungeon together. Right. Instance MMOs. And PSO, Fantasy Star Online, came out for the Dreamcast in 1998. 99? 99. 99. Um, and then Fantasy Star Online 2 came out towards the end of the Dreamcast. No, no, it came out to the, on the original Xbox. Mm-hmm. Um, and never got ported to North America. There was a... There are many speculations about it, and I won't really wade into why. Uh, both um, Fantasy Star, uh, Online 2, and any related media just hasn't made its way over here. Mm-hmm. 
until this month, where Microsoft somehow brokered a deal with Sega to bring Fantasy Star Online 2 remastered HD Dude. to the Xbox One. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's been an open beta now for a few weeks. Okay. And by all accounts, it is fun and awesome. It carries some of the jank of being a game that old that has been revitalized and, and brought over here, like given the advancements we've made in game design for online games. Sure. But like the idea of being able to play a Fantasy Star online game in the year of our Lord 2020 mm-hmm. is uh, an amazing one. So that's pretty amazing. Exciting. I mean, the only thing, so, 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 you know, I was going to make a joke about cinematics only because uh, really Final Fantasy was the first really big game that took advantage of cinematics in, in a way, like in the, in, the, in, the, in the RPG world. Yeah. Um, and everyone remembers the cinematics of the early Final Fantasy games. Yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy VII is the game that, that first started using and leveraging pre-rendered CG. That's right. That wouldn't work in Fantasy Star necessarily in the same way, but, uh, but you know, so the, the interesting thing with you and your experience with, fan, with uh, Final Fantasy uh, VII Remake, I think all the improvements that they made outside of storyline and maybe game engine or whatever, it was all in service of what you were talking about, which was replicating the feeling, mm-hmm. right? Um, they needed to make sure that your implicit knowledge as a modern gamer of where games should be right now um, doesn't take you out of the experience of the game and the feeling of the nostalgia. Yeah, right. And that's it's a hard balance. So all the like, upgrades I, I, that they're making was to make sure that we keep that consistent. And I, I, I really didn't envy them. Like that is not an easy task and. Uh, again, without spoiling it, some of the cool things that happen later in the game are actually an interesting meta-commentary on their own struggle, or can be interpreted as a meta-commentary on their own struggles with working with ex- existing expectations. Right. And um, it, it's so well thought out. So, I yeah. mean, like, you know, silver lining, there's been some really good games lately. Yeah. Uh, and I think there will continue to be a lot of games keeping people distracted as we deal with unprecedented times you're right and speaking of unprecedented times and keep up keeping people distracted and keep people entertained and cinematics wrap all that into one into what is now the actual physical entertainment world of movies um even comic books are there movies anymore who knows yeah so you know <laughs> are there I mean, comics anymore yeah Apparently, there's an end to Netflix, and I've reached it. So, you know, there, there's, there's a ton of just, you know, people are sitting around consuming content. Um, Netflix, the interesting thing for Netflix is the fact that their uh, subscriber rates are going through the roof, but they are burning through capital like nobody's business because they're burning through bandwidth. Because every, like, nobody's business model in the streaming world, FYI, uh, accounts for a hundred percent of your user base being at home using it at the same time yeah it's, like it's, it's, none of it right it's bad news bears across the <laughs> across the whole so netflix thing. is making money hand over fist but what's masking it is that they're probably just breaking even during this insane time they're gonna they're gonna be you know drinking champagne and and doing all sorts of crazy stuff with all the money they're gonna have on the other side of this when 80% of the people who've signed up for Netflix to get them through this time period won't cancel. Mm-hmm. And now 
they'll drop down to 10% of their user base actually being online at any given time. But the interesting thing that's going on right now is what happens to movies. So AMC's declared bankruptcy. Uh, who knows what's gonna happen? Uh, they're the largest theater chain in the world. So who knows what's gonna happen with AMC? Um, the interesting thing is the folks who are moving in to buy Cineplex, it's a big U UK company, they are now heavily leveraged having just bought all of these companies around the world. Yep. Are they gonna follow suit on AMC? There is, of course, the need for people to go to the movies and watch a movie in, 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 in a communal sense. Right? But I think, it will sure. I think it will move into a niche, fun experience where you do dinner at a movie in the same way that we've been moving to these VIP experiences, the Alamo right. Draft House, give me a stein of beer, mm -hmm. a fucking chicken leg, and let me watch some Arnie movies. Right. I think that is going to be the model moving forward mm -hmm. and that the idea of casually going to the movies as your primary vehicle for seeing film distribution, I think will die. I think what's going to, what's opening the movie, so movie industry's eyes. And this is a lot of things, right? Like working from home, uh, that notion is companies who say, hi, oh, our employees can't work from home. Their eyes are being opened to that notion. At the same time, what's, what's being eyes are being opened in the movie industry is the notion that, um, we need to put movies in movie theaters, right? Mm -hmm. So two big things are driving that. One, little known fact, um, the John Campions of the world know this inside and out and talk about it all the time and know this intrinsically, but for the general public, they don't know this, that when you're talking about box office receipts, only half of it goes to the studio. The other half goes to the movie theater yes. chain, right? So if you as a family of four drop 50 bucks to go to the movies, let's say the argument is like $40 in movie tickets to go to the movies, only twenty dollars of that goes over to the movie, theater. and then everything in excess of that of that goes to the theater. That's right. So concessions, all that. Because that's that, that the theater gets to keep all that, but the actual ticket, the only thing that the studio gets is twenty dollars of those forty dollars of movie tickets. So you're seeing now uh, movies premiering on iTunes, as an example, where you rent it, the you know on launch day for twenty dollars. Which is exactly the money they would get anyway well, if a family than, I mean, of four Now, keep in mind that Apple takes 30% of that sure. revenue. Sure. And, but I, th I think the more salient example are the people who own the channels of distribution. Right. So you've got Disney um, pulling Absolutely. movies into Disney+. Plus. So my thoughts are, uh, you know, the idea of uh, Black Widow mm -hmm. was supposed to come out in two weeks. Yep. I think is going to premiere on Disney Plus because what benefit is it to them to not? Well, here's the interesting thing: people keep talking about the fact that you know movies, 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 all this kind of stuff. How can how can Disney afford to have a movie premiere uh, pushed over to, to Disney Plus versus not? Right now, Disney has more than 50 million subscribers on Disney Plus. More than 50 million. Yeah. Right. So keep in mind that last year. Disney raked in the most money at the box office, gross, than any studio in history. How much did they pull in the box office last year? Six billion dollars. Yeah. At 50 million users, Disney's gonna pull in, roughly speaking, six billion dollars. Well, and, and also like- From Disney Plus alone. When we talk, when we talk about digital uh, subscription systems and services, we talk about the, the LTV, the lifetime value of a user. And, and every service has a different method of calculating the average lifetime value of a user. Right. Now with Disney Plus, I'm willing to assume that the LTV 
sits at around three to four months. Right. Um, and that's buoyed by Disney super fans, mm-hmm. people who've signed up for one month and fucked off. Right. I think conservatively, you could say three to four months of LTV. Mm-hmm. So, everyone who was going to go see Black, Black Widow, Widow, let's assume 75% of them get a Disney Plus account just to see it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, call it a three to four month LTV average. Um, Let's assume, let's assume Black Widow was going to do a billion dollars at the box office and sure. gross. And let's assume that the average ticket price is $20. Just to make mm-hmm. the math easy. Sure. Right? So that means, what? 50 million people globally mm-hmm. go see Black Widow. Yeah. So if a new 50 million, now maybe some of that is existence, obviously. Sure. Uh, just let's assume 50% is existence. So say 25 million new people show up to Disney Plus to see Black Widow. Right. And they average out at four months, three months, three months. Mm-hmm. Three months. And they're paying, what, $11 a month? Yep. So, that's 33 yep. times 50% of 50 million, 25 million. Mm-hmm. 25 million times $33. Yep. Is what? Uh, 55 million. Uh, I don't know what you do with that. 25 million times 33. Uh, $665 million. Something around that. Yep. 660 something. Close to seven hundred million, which translates into a one point four billion dollar movie for Disney. Right, because we're talking about box office and right. not because like, Disney Disney keeps all seven hundred million of that. I think it's a, I think it is, and, and and that's some conservative numbers and and, sure. and some upper bound numbers that are a little weird. Too. Yeah, so for everybody making the argument that you know things shouldn't go straight to Disney Plus, uh, there's a strong business case to be made. You're still gonna make money hand over fist. Especially in this case of Disney Plus where – because I think where people are making that argument and it's, 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 it, there's a flaw in it is that they're using the argument, well, you can't premiere stuff on Netflix. It's like, no, 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 no. You premiere stuff on distribution channels that you own, yeah. that you're not, you're not paying a royalty for or sharing any revenue from, right? If Disney is putting their own content on Disney Plus, it's like them putting it into their own movie theaters. Now, the real worry – is will this kill independent cinema? Right, right. And, and that's an entirely different conversation for a different pod where we talk about the real, pardon my French, but bullshit arrangement that movie studios have with independent movie theaters because large chains that are now going bankrupt muscle the studios into deals that screw yeah. smaller chains, right? So... That's, that, that, that should be a podcast almost on its own. Maybe we'll invite somebody over to talk about it because that's a fascinating notion. The fact that, uh, you know, this new world, how does it affect independent cinema, cinema but the leverage that the studios had, the leverage that the chains had over the, over the studios is now dissipating. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's an opportunity there. I just think, I, yeah, I, I do think that mm. once, once the dust settles on this and people are able to go outside again and, and congregate and gather, independent cinemas will uh, find renewed life. But I don't think it'll be in the blockbusters of today. I think mm. renewed life will be in continued cult screenings, but also perhaps some kind of new model. Who knows? But right. eh. Um, and for another podcast, one thing we didn't get to touch on, but we really wanted to talk about it, and it's really important to both us and our audience, is uh, the future of comic books. We're both big comic books guys, yeah. and uh, this current situation is literally destroying your local comic book shop. Um, and, you know, 
real serious questions have been raised about the future of DC Comics as a publishing arm. Even before this. Even before this, but this is really accelerating it. Um, Marvel is kind of in a different story altogether because Disney has, you know, laws of averages and being able to kind of... But I think it's only out. a matter of time before Disney realizes that comics are a thing of its past because mm-hmm. the only... Like, if you... 10,000 foot, you're an investor who doesn't give a shit about comics. You're a board mm-hmm. of directors of Disney. Mm-hmm. And you look at the money that Marvel generates. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, like... Yeah, I guess comics can be our idea skunk works. Sure. But this will never make us money. Right. Like, this is where they get to play around with their... They, they get to storyboard our movies for free. That's for right. cheap. Which is... Disney would be willing to, to sink money That's that. That's really the attitude that, that comics shouldn't be looked at. Not necessarily as a revenue-generating feature, but as an IP-generating skunk works research and development That's right. arm that then funds... Oh, audiences love this like this new character we've introduced. Well, then fuck, let's make a movie and T-shirts. And I and really toys like the fact that you games. brought up the notion of Skunk Works, as that's how the comic books arm for Disney should be treated. Skunk Works, they get whatever budget they want. Exactly. Right, because they're the dream house. Well, like right? it, 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 it's it's they're they're an X factor. Right. If you can show me an uptick of X, we'll give you a budget of Y. Mm-hmm. Boom, done. One of the um, best things that the House of Mouse did was buy the House of Ideas. Right. So long right. as you don't treat them as a an entity that is necessary for profit, right? Then you're good. Absolutely. And on that note. On that note, uh, we're gonna call it here, and uh, we promise. Oh, actually, but the, on that note, I do need to extend it just a smidge, since we're talking about comics, we need to address comics in general. Uh, a very special edition of Bits, Bites, and Bourbon that we're going to record a little bit tomorrow. We don't know oh, how long yes. it's going to be. Oh, my God. How you, did I forget this? You could not forget this. How could you possibly forget this? This is important, dear this listener. Is, this is important. Our next episode will be recorded tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I don't know why you need to know exactly when it will be recorded. <laughs> but Garfield Eats. Our beloved Garfield Eats. Our patron. Our spirit animal. <laughs> Is having a fanvester call. We don't even know what that means. It is a Zoom fanvester call for all the fanvesters out there. Of which we don't know if what a fanvester is, but we're gonna be one tomorrow. But the CEO and founder of Garfield Eats, the writer of the most incredible corporate manifesto that's ever. We'll be there to answer our questions, and you better believe Bits, Bites, and Bourbon will be there to ask the hard-hitting questions. Like, how do you send lasagna via Canada Post? If I order my lasagna via Canada Post and pay for Express Post, will it show up within two to three business days? And how good will it taste when it gets here? Will it be as good as the Garfuccino that I had to choke down the other day? All questions we will find answers for you tomorrow on a special edition of Bits, Bites, and Bourbon, which will make it to the internet whenever it does. So on that bombshell, I've been Avinash Singh at Easy Tech Care. And I've been Julian Spillane. And that there is another delicious can of Stock and Row. Catch you guys next time. Cheers. Bits, Bites and Bourbon is an Easy Tech cast production and was recorded in the back lounge of Easy Tech Care's offices in downtown Toronto. 
And while the fine spirits we enjoyed tonight weren't sponsored, they should have been. Hint. Hint. For more details about Easy Tech Care, visit them at easytechcare.com. And to see what Comey Games are up to, check them out at comeygames.com.